Hello, and welcome to the BarCast. I'm your host, Nick Barr, coming to you on a rainy, foggy Saturday afternoon. Um, Some housekeeping notes. I've ported over the BarCast to Anchor, the podcasting service that was recently acquired by Spotify. Hopefully they don't shut it down. But uh, I was excited to switch over, and uh, uh, hopefully that results in no... um, changes to the listening experience. If anything, uh, it should be a little bit smoother and maybe we'll throw in some of those, um, kind of fun, what are they called? Bumpers or, or intermission sounds. So you might hear those, um, for the next couple of bar casts. Um, I've been reading uh, a book. It's a classic how children fail by John Holt. It had been on my list for a long time, and I finally got around to reading it this weekend. It's one of those books that belongs in sort of the canon. I I imagine imagine if I worked at an ed tech company and was in charge of the onboarding experience, there would be a small number of books that I would have every new team member read, and How Children Fail would be on that list. It's sort of a crash course in the visceral frustrations of the teaching experience around um, young kids. It's very like kind of honestly and purely written uh, as Holt struggles, fails, struggles, has small successes with teaching his kids math. Um, I've got this great book from, it's like this edition from the 70s. The back of it says, does your child march off to war every morning? The classroom should be a place of learning. Instead, it is the scene of a continual battle in which teacher and child struggle to gain the advantage. The casualties are heavy. Some children fail outright. Others have the seeds of future failure implanted. And practically none come close to realizing their potential. So it's 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 sort of a bleak look at the mainstream education system. But it does have these blips of epiphany or hope. And I wanted to read one of those passages now. Uh, And I wanted to read it in part because it actually sparked a memory for me of my own childhood education, which I'll share after I read the passage. Um, So this is March 11th, 1961. The whole book is written in diary format. And Holt is going to be talking about these math manipulables called, uh, or manipulatives called uh, Cuisinaire rods. It might help you to Google it so you can have a mental picture in your head. But just imagine um, a set of 10 rods. Uh, basically bars of a certain length. The white bar is of length one, and uh, they increase in size and change in color. I think the orange rod is 10 long. Uh, And so the purpose of these rods is to allow students to sort of really get their hands on the concrete implications and consequences of differences in length, right? So students might learn, for instance, that uh, 10 white rods, in other words, 10 rods of unit of length one are equivalent to um, one orange rod of length 10 uh, and so on. And so he, he uses these rods with varying success. So let's hear about Dorothy. And this is about three pages long. So strap in. Dorothy was working with me the other day. I've been trying to get to the bottom of her misunderstanding of numbers so that I might find some solid ground to start building on. I think we may have touched the bottom, but it was a long way down. On the table, I made two rows of white rods, five in each row. 
As I made them, I said, here are two rows, same number of rods in each row. She agreed. I asked how many rods I'd use to make these two rows. She said 10, right? So white rods, one unit length each. I wrote 10 on a piece of paper beside us and put a check beside it. Then I made two rows of seven. She agreed that the rows were equal and told me when I asked that I had used 14 rods to make them. She had to count them, of course. I wrote 14 and put a check beside it. Then I said, now you make some. She pushed my rows back into the pile and then brought out some rods with which she made two rows out of six. I asked how many she had used and she counted up to 12. I wrote this down and put a check beside it. Then I asked her to see if she could make two rows with the same number in each row and no rods left over using 11 rods. She pushed her 10 rods back into the pile, then counted out 11 rods from the pile and tried to make them into two equal rows. After a while, she said it won't work. I agreed that it wouldn't, wrote down 11, and put a big X beside it. Then I said, some numbers work like 10 and 14 and others don't like 11. I'd like you to start with six and tell me which numbers work and which ones don't. After what we had been doing, these instructions were clear. She counted out six rods, which she made into two rows of three. I wrote down six and checked it. Then I got my first surprise. Instead of bringing out one more rod to give herself seven, she pushed all of them back into the pile, then counted out seven rods and tried to make two equal rows out of them. After a while, she said it won't work. I wrote seven with an X beside it. Then she pushed all the rods back into the pile, counted out eight, made two rows of four, and said eight works. Then she pushed them all back, counted out nine, could not make two rows, and told me so. And she followed exactly this procedure all the way up to about 14. Then she made a big step. Having done 14, she did not push the rods back into the pile, but brought another rod to make 15 and merely added that rod to one of the rows before telling me that 15 would not work. Again, she left her rows, this time adding another rod to the short row before telling me that 16 would work. This more efficient process she continued up into the early 20s, about 24, I think. Then, having found that 24 would work, she said, but without using the rods, 25 won't work. I wrote it, and she continued thus, with increasing speed and confidence, until we got to about 36. At this point, she stopped naming the odd numbers altogether, saying only 36 works, 38 works, 40 works, and so up into the 50s where we stopped. We rested a bit, fooled around with the rods, did a little building with them, and then went on to the next problem. This time I made three equal rows and asked her to find what numbers, beginning with six, would work for this problem. To my surprise, she cannot arrange six rods in three equal rows, arranging them instead in a three-two-one pattern. I helped her out and she began to work. From the start, she moved one step ahead of where she had been on the two-row problem. When I had made six ro rods into three rows of two and had written that six worked, she added a rod to one of the rows, told me that seven would not work, added a rod to another row, told me that eight would not work, added a rod to another row, and told me that nine would work. In this way, we worked our way up to about 15 or 18. Here she stopped using the rods and said 19 doesn't work, 20 doesn't work, 21 works, and so on. When she got up to about 27, she just gave me the numbers that worked, 30, 33, 36, 39. In the four-row problem, we began with eight rods. She used the rod to tell me that 9, 10, 11 would not work and that 12 would work. Without the rods, she told me that 13, 14, and 15 would not work and that 16 would. From there, she began counting by fours, 20, 24, 28, 32, etc. In the five-row problem, we began with 10 rods. 
and after using the rods to get to 15, she went on from there, counting by five. People to whom I have described this child's work have found it all but impossible to believe. They could not imagine that even the most wildly unsuccessful student could have so little mathematical insight or would use such laborious and inefficient methods to solve so simple a problem. The fact remains that this is what the child did. There's no use in we teachers telling ourselves that such children ought to know more, ought to understand better, ought to be able to work more efficiently. The facts are what count. The reason this poor child has learned hardly anything in six years of school is that no one ever began where she was, just as the reason she was able to make such extraordinary gains in efficiency and understanding during this session is that, beginning where she was, she was learning genuinely and on her own. Um, and the book is kind of full of these powerful, uh, unfiltered un observations of student learning. I like what he goes on to say later. With thought, practice, and luck, we should be able to devise problems that children can do in ways which, being their own, will be of use to them. Such problems could make up a kind of self-adjusting learning machine in which the child himself makes the program harder as he becomes more skillful. But this approach to mathematical learning, and other kinds as well, will require teachers to stop thinking of the way or the best way to solve problems. We must recognize that children who are dealing with a problem in a very primitive, experimental, and inefficient level are making discoveries that are just as good, just as exciting, just as worthy of interest and encouragement as the more sophisticated discoveries made by more advanced students. In other words, the invention of the wheel was as big a step forward as the invention of the airplane. Bigger, in fact. We teachers will have to learn to recognize when our students are, mathematically speaking, inventing wheels and when they're inventing airplanes. Um, so that's a passage from How Children Fail. It's a smart, uh, it's a small paperback, well worth reading and, um, and foundational in, in a lot uh, of ways, I imagine. Um, anyway, as I was reading that, passage, I had a memory pop into my head that I wanted to share. And it must have been in fifth grade or sixth grade. And I actually, I can't remember this teacher. And I think it was a substitute teacher who had us in computer lab. And we were working in Excel or some spreadsheet software. And we were working on averages. And I remember, I remember trying to come up with a shortcut and, uh, being told that the shortcut didn't work. And so the shortcut was this. I think we were averaging many numbers. Um, but let's just say for now it was three numbers, six, nine, and 15, right? And it was sort of obvious how to average two numbers. And I think by that time I even knew how to average many numbers, but it was a more laborious process, right? You had to sort of add up all the numbers and do some math um, uh, from there. And so I thought to myself, well, why don't I just take uh, for instance, the average of 9 and 15, I know what that is, that's 12. And then I'll take the average of the remaining numbers, 6 and 12, and that's 9. And so then the average of these three numbers is 9. And maybe I suspected that it wasn't true, or maybe I just got a different answer than everybody else, but the substitute teacher came over and explained that I was wrong. But then she sort of had me think about why why it didn't work. And I remember thinking about it for a while, and I'm not sure if I got it or not. Uh, maybe she helped me figure it out. Um, but uh, it, was, it was obvious that the, by averaging the three numbers, I got a different answer, right? It was 10. So 6 plus 9 is 15, plus 15 is 30, divided by 3 is 10. So the, the average is 10, and I knew that the average was 10 because I knew that was the right way to do it. 
why was it that I was getting nine when I tried this different way? And um, of course, with some thought, you know, when you're averaging the first two numbers, nine and 15, and then taking that average against the third number, you're sort of unfairly giving that third number too much weight, right? Because you're really treating it like 50% of the numbers when in fact, it's only one third of the numbers. And that sort of gets carried out in the fact that my, my answer nine was lower than the answer 10. Because six was sort of unfairly pulling the number too far down. Anyway, I was just sort of sort of somehow given this space to sort that out on my own. And it's funny how these memories um, endure or pop back up. I wonder if you have any any memories like that of sort of these small epiphanies and, and what the conditions were that allowed you to have it. But I'm pretty convinced that the condition here was a, a conversation with my substitute teacher as she roamed the computers, right? Which is like maybe commonplace now, but in a time when we didn't really have access to computers, uh, um, there, there were really no one-on-one conversations with teachers, right? Because one of the ways technology can help is every student is sort of occupied with, with something that is at least giving them a little bit of feedback, Anyway, that's a memory that I have, and I I just was struck by not only that memory, but by how, while that example seems sort of simple, that that mistaken thinking or that wrong intuition comes up over and over again. And I'm reminded of Simpson's paradox, which I was rereading the Wikipedia page for today, and uh, I find Simpson's paradox to be really um, kind of delightful. Uh, so. I'll share two examples of Simpson's paradox at work. Um, the first is a, a real, they're both real life examples. Um, we compare the batting averages of Derek Jeter and David Justice in the years 1995 and 1996. So batting average, in case you don't know, is the percentage of the time you hit the ball and play and sort of get to base in baseball. Um, and in 1995, David Justice had a higher batting average than Derek Jeter. In 1996, David Justice had a higher batting average than Derek Jeter. And yet, in those two years combined, Derek Jeter had a higher batting average than David Justice. Um, so that, that at face value seems impossible, potentially. Um, uh, but what's going on is sort of the same general thing, the, the, the same sort of gotcha that I had in my averages uh, mistake, which was we're sort of by comparing averages of 1995, 1996, we're mistakenly, um, ignoring the important variable, which is at bats. And in fact, in 1995, Derek Jeter only had 48 at bats, very few. While David justice had a, many, he had 400 at bats and David justice had a slightly better batting average that year, but many, many more at bats. 1996, it's the opposite story. Derek Jeter had 580 at-bats with a batting average of 314. David Justice had many fewer. He only had 140 with a slightly better batting average. Um, so now this year, Derek Jeter had um, way more at-bats, but a slightly worse batting average. Um, when you take those combined, the math is straightforward. Derek Jeter um, has a better year, right? Um, so his his bad batting average year was overly counted because it didn't have that many at-bats. In contrast, David Justice's good batting average year was way overcounted when he didn't have that many at-bats. So 
Um, while the individual years tell one story, the combined um, years tell the tell the real important story. Derek Jeter had the better two years. Um, and if if this is if this is hard to visualize, just go to the Wikipedia page. They have some nice tables to explain it. But what I really like about Simpson's paradox is, and and kind of in the spirit of how children fail, there's no like rule book for solving Simpson's paradox. So let's take another real world example. Um, there's two treatments for kidney stones, um, treatment A and treatment B. Um, and, uh, when treatment A is applied to small kidney stones, which are like uh, lower risk, um, it's more effective than treatment B. And when treatment A is applied to large kidney stones, um, which are more risky, it's also more effective than treatment B. And yet, um, treatment B overall is more successful on kidney stones. So again, maybe take a second to think that through. Why is it that um, treatment A would be more effective on small kidney stones and more effective on big kidney stones, but combined treatment B is more effective? And there's no there's no middle stones. Small stones plus large stones equals all stones. Um, well, the answer is um, that treatment A is used almost really rarely on small stones. So there, it's only used 87 times and has a high success rate. Treatment B also has a high success rate, but is used um, almost five times as often as treatment A. So treatment A is 93% out of 87 times. Treatment B is 87% out of 270 times. Large stones, which are riskier, um, treatment A is used way more often than treatment B, um, but has a low success rate, only 73%, whereas treatment B is only used 80 times and has a 70%, right? So it's 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 almost the uh, it's sort of the same story as the Derek Jeter David Justice um, situation. I mean that you could apply the two by two matrix to the same and sort of explain it, right? So group A uh, not used that many times, not used that often in the high success case, um, used a lot of times in the risky case. But I think what's fascinating about Simpson's paradox is. In this case, unlike the Derek Jeter, David Justice story, you actually want to look at the, um, you want to partition the data to make sense of it. The aggregate does not tell the right story. Treatment B is maybe more successful in general, but treatment A is the more effective um, intervention. Um, And like use common language or common sense to think about it. Um, Small stones, super safe. So just use the simple Treatment B. I actually don't know what treatment B is, but imagine just like, um, you know, imagine it's cheaper, easier, kind of it's blunter. So you get those small stones out of there with treatment B. Sure, you could use treatment A, and in fact, it is slightly more effective, but no need to. They both almost always work. Large stones, high risk situation, more likely to fail in general. Um, group B is almost ne- treatment B is almost never used. Now we're really making use of treatment A, the more let's say sort of finessed experimental treatment. Um, way more successful than B, but um, because the large stones are more difficult to operate on generally has a lower success rate. So you have the opposite conclusion here. Here you want to throw away the combined data. You want to throw away the aggregate data and make sense of the um, of the partition data, segmented data, if you will. Um, so uh, that's Simpson's paradox. I I want to leave it there um, just because I get a kick out of it. And and what I really love about Simpson's Paradox and what I really love about How Children Fail is this appeal to sort of real-world sense-making um, 
at the expense and in resistance to any what what John Holt calls cookbooking. In other words, the memorization of procedures and rules um, to come up with your answer. Because if you were to just hear the batting average story, you might be tempted to say, ah, okay, we should always look at the aggregate. But in fact, Simpson's paradox just as often encourages us to look at the segmented data. And there is no cookbook way to know which to do. In fact, um, uh, Wikipedia has sort of a nice way of putting it. Um, As to why and how a story, not data, should dictate choices, the answer is that it is the story which encodes the causal relationships among the variables, right? Our story is actually where the data is encoded, and by making sense of the real-world situation, we can sort of unpack uh, whether to lean on partitioned or aggregated data. Um, There's really no other way to do it. You have to to look at the story and make sense um, to know what to do. I would say in in the end, I'm a little bit more flexible than Holt is in his sort of broad condemnation of using cookbooks or recipes. Um, I, I, I think that complete incantation can be magical. I've experienced that in computer programming, for instance. You don't know how it works, but it does work. And as a strategy to sort of build confidence and believe um, in sort of reliability, I think it. I think it is powerful, especially with computer simulations. Now, you just might simply not believe something, might not be able to make sense of it, but you might gain some footing, just finding out through this magical recipe that it does indeed work, and then from there you can go back and make sense of it. Um, so I certainly don't think that you can bullshit and encant your way into understanding. Uh, at the same time, I do think that. Um, um, the memorization of recipes and gaining conviction that recipes do in fact work can be a good stepping stone um, toward general understanding. Anyway, that'll do it for this episode of the Barcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Check out How Children Fail. And if you have any other classic texts of education, please do let me know. Uh, I would love to read it. See you next time.